that kiss has arguably overshadowed Spain's victory in the 2023 Women's World Cup. You know the one, president of the Royal Spanish Football Federation, who's also vice president of UEFA, the Union of European Football Associations, Luis Rubiales, has been suspended by FIFA, but is refusing to quit as president of the federation after kissing Spanish midfielder Jennifer Hermoso on the mouth after the World Cup win. Former football events and marketing professional Sally Friedman has written about working in the football industry in her recently published book Get Your Tits Out for the Lads. Uh, she worked for UEFA, she worked for the Asian Football Confederation for Melbourne City and uh, with Wellington Phoenix. I asked Sally Friedman to tell me what her take on the Spanish kiss is. Oh my gosh, um, it's very upsetting, it's very frustrating. It's been going on for such a long time now with still no concrete resolution. Um, I was just reading the latest news that it's come out that the government can't suspend him as they've clarified that it was serious misconduct and not very serious misconduct, um, which apparently means that that only gives them the ability to suspend him for two years, um, not any longer, but that's just breaking news. So trying to digest that, obviously FIFA suspension still stands, which is 90 days. Um, but as has been reported in the media, it's such a shame that it's overshadowing what should be the biggest celebration of these fabulous athletes' careers. They've won the Women's World Cup, which is hard enough anyway when you're in a positive team environment. To have done it with this backdrop that we're all hearing about now it makes their achievement even more incredible, in my opinion. Um, so although there's been a lot of negativity around it, I think the one positive that I'm trying to hang on to is that this can really kickstart systematic change across not only football, but as we know, football is often a mirror of life. And therefore, if this really does change attitudes and change perceptions towards women, towards female sport, towards gender equality, then wow, what have these women achieved? It's absolutely incredible. Not only have they achieved a biggest trophy on the world stage and won the World Cup, but they've also can be instrumental in this sort of Me Too movement and say that they've helped instigate one of the most systemic changes we'll ever see in society. So do you think vote. that it? Do you think that it will instigate change? There's a quite a large body of opinion that says, "Oh, you know, the Spanish—they're emotional and they're passionate—and it was a kiss and move on." I think I've heard that from friends. I've heard that from commentators. And, and as you said, in the culture in Spain, that's sort of been, oh, everyone's over-exaggerating. It was only a kiss. It was in the moment. Um, why is everyone going crazy about this? But I think that the what this highlights is that the 
the education is so critical around fixing this problem is because that opinion is is coming out quite a lot. I see it on social media, on every post. There's you know there's a lot of comments with that sort of sentiment, and I think it's sexism is a result of societal unconscious bias, gendered stereotypes, and sometimes it's not it's not intentional by men or women. We we've been, all been brought up, and we've in this world where we've been surrounded by gendered stereotypes and it can be a slip of the tongue it can be you know in some people's eyes just a kiss but they haven't got the education the context around everything that's happened the backdrop of the last 50 odd years of inequality all the problems that are associated with not having a gender equal world and what the benefits will be if we move towards one so I do feel that what needs to happen as a result of this ugly incident is educating the leaders the senior decision makers to understand why it is a problem what happened, that that attitude that is you've described is wrong. And if we fix it, this will be the benefits to society. Um, so I'm hopeful that there will be some kind of education around these leaders that, uh, that think it's okay to, to do what he did. The, the kiss was compounded, of course, because after the win, he also grabbed his crotch within a very close distance of the Queen of Spain and her young daughter, as men tend to do in moments of excitement, he says. Um, That put together with the kiss on the lips adds to the ugliness of the incident, does it not? Correct. And additionally, before that, I was watching live... And I felt uncomfortable watching him with all the players. He was hugging very tightly, getting in on their necks. And I thought, oh, what is this guy doing on the world stage? It was already obvious to me from the moment the medal ceremony started that I didn't feel comfortable watching this guy. And he'd already lifted a player over his shoulder as well and held it tightly around the thighs. So it's an accumulation of those those three things that have been caught on camera. But also, let's not forget, 15 players went on strike one year ago and said that they didn't want to play in for the Spanish team. If you're a professional player and you say, I'm going on strike, I don't want to be part of the World Cup. I mean, that's the pinnacle of your career. So something significant is going on for 15 players to say, I've had enough. Um, and yet they still won. Um, so yeah, for me, when you, you talk about it, not just as one isolated kiss, as you rightly said, when you add it up to the context of the whole situation, it's been going on for so many years and so many of the players have spoken up before and nothing's ever happened that I think this is, you know, it's almost like if this doesn't bring change, what on earth does need to happen on a world stage for, for change to happen? Because if it's not this, I don't know what it is. The players were in revolt against their coach, Vilda. Um, because of his, as we understand it, autocratic practices, he mm-hmm. could equally say, well, look, you won, so I was right. He could, um, but he was also applauding when Luis didn't resign. He was sat in the front row and then he backtracked a couple of days later and said that he shouldn't have applauded. So, you know, that there was all reports prior to the tournament as to why the players didn't like Builder, I read, and it's reported, I don't know if this is accurate, that one of the reasons they were not happy was that he wanted to keep tabs on the players when they were in training camps and they weren't allowed to lock their bedrooms in the hotel they were staying at so he could check their whereabouts. Um, and so you hear stories like that and think, 
how has he been nominated then just yesterday he didn't win but he was nominated by UEFA as coach of the year Serena won it and dedicated her award to the Spanish team which was wonderful and spoke so eloquently and and did the Lionesses proud and England proud with her speech but you know Again, it feels like the powers that be are sometimes tone deaf. Why is he even nominated? Why is his face all over the possible award winners when we've got this story going on in the background? Why did you want to work in football when it was clearly a man's world? I've followed football since a very young age. So it's in my family. I've loved it from the age of two. I've supported Brighton Hove Albion, which is where I grew up in England. Um, and I've got two older brothers and we used to play in the garden. I used to go and watch Brighton. Um, so it was in my DNA. I love sport. I studied a master's in sport management in Australia. Um, and football is, for me, the best sport on the planet. And I really wanted to use my studies to work within the football industry. And I navigated a path through Australia, New Zealand, and then finally landed a role at UEFA. But you're right, I write about this in the first chapter of my book. All of my friends and family at the time said, Sally, be very careful. You're gonna be walking into a man's world. There's a lot of pell-mell stale dinosaurs at the top. You're going to struggle. And I naively told them all, be quiet, I'm fine, I'm strong, I'm resilient, I know my football, I've worked in it, I write about it, I'm an employee, I play it, I coach it, I'll be okay, I'll hold my own. But I realise now they were very right and I was completely wrong. Um, And working in a man's world, even as a strong, resilient, independent woman, was extremely hard. And after a long time, I said, enough's enough, and I wrote the book. What was it? That was, if you like, the straw that broke your back. Sure. Um, It wasn't one particular incident. It was the fact that it was systemic throughout my career. And it happened, I'd say, almost weekly. There could have been a story that went into the book. My book could have been an encyclopedia. It's only 150 pages. Um, But there were many stories that didn't make the book. Um, So that was what was so tough. If it was one person repeatedly acting like a silly human being you could maybe excuse it or go okay that's just a one-off that's one person but it was everywhere every organization I worked at across three different countries grassroots all the way up to senior level and that showed me that it was a pattern you know once it happens okay that's upsetting specifically though what was everywhere sexism misogyny and how how did it evidence itself so I, I, I reference lots of different anecdotes in my books where I tell different stories about some of the examples. That, um, one very sh- short one that I can say that sort of sums up my feelings was at a stadium as a female. Um, I was working and I went to use the female toilet. It was match day minus one and it was locked. And I asked the facilities manager if he could please open the female toilet. And he told me I'll just use the men's Sally. And the, the men's he was pointing to were the changing rooms where the guys were actually getting changed, ready to train. And I'd have to walk through the changing room, go to where their urinals are and use a men's toilet. Um, and I sort of looked at him shocked and said, uh, can you please open the female toilet? And he said, no, I'll have to clean it then. And that will cost time and money. Um, so... 
I don't normally lose it in a work environment, but <laughs> when I heard that for after the second time of politely asking, I said, okay, um, well, I'm pretty sure a, a block toilet when I put my used sanitary towel down in the men's toilet is going to cost you a lot more time and money than it is if you don't open the female toilet. Can you please open the female toilet? And reluctantly, he, he went off and trampled and got the key and came back about 10 minutes later and opened the door. And I said to him, you know, I'm going to be here every Friday. Can you please make sure that this this toilet is open? And the following week, of course, you know what happened. I came back to do my job, to film a couple of players, to do a couple of interviews, whatever I was doing. I went to use the bathroom and it was locked. And that's something so small and so insignificant in some ways. But when little incidences like that happen time and time again, they accumulate. And at that point, the second time it happened, I just fell against the door of the toilet and like sat in a curled ball and, and almost cried because I was like, I'm invisible in this world. I can't even use the bathroom at work. That's just one example. There are many more in the book, but that hopefully gives you an idea of the, the type of things I'm talking about. You say in the book, I think, that you don't blame men, that Correct. we're living in a gendered stereotype world where we all have bias and it's hard for anyone to change. But the incident you've just described does not illustrate only systemic sexism. It illustrates a bloody-minded individual who's too lazy or rude to do the right thing. So it's, yeah, that's... it's hard not to blame individual men who, who could so easily change things. That's correct. In that particular instance, you're right. Sometimes it is the fault of an individual. But in general, what I'm trying to say is that yeah. my book is not an attack on all men. It's certainly and some women frustrate me, too. We're not perfect. We some of the really extreme feminists, I think, go too far and make mountains out of molehills. And today there was a post about Seferin last night at the ceremony said to Serena, oh, be careful. The trophy's a bit heavy. Um, and everyone was up in arms about that. But I actually thought, come on, he might have said that to a guy as well. Like, I know as with the backdrop of what's been happening over the last week, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to say, but it's not worth a whole article of he's sexist because he said, be careful, the trophy's heavy. Um, could so sometimes been, I think we go a bit yeah, too far. I mean, that could have been kindness, you know. Exactly. It's tricky, mm. isn't it? He doesn't want her to drop the, the trophy on stage. So I'd be quite grateful if he said that to me. Um, you know, be careful, it's heavy. You'd say that to a guy as well, I yeah, think. Yeah. So I think that one was an example of where we go too far. But yes, you're right. Some instances, individual men are to blame. But what I meant with my statement more that it wasn't, it's definitely not all men. And some, it's casual sexism that is unintentional that I think is what can be fixed by education because they don't even realise that they're being sexist. It's a slip of the tongue. It's peer pressure. It's, oh, I hadn't thought about that. So we need to educate them around what the benefits of gender equality would be if they had diversity of thought on a board and they didn't have 20 white men all thinking the same way. Then we're going to get more ugly incidences like the one we've seen in Spain. But if you have a perspective from a young person, an old person, a female, um, different backgrounds, then you're going to have lots of different voices heard, which only brings good, um, in my opinion. I'm talking to Sally Friedman, who worked for many, many years in the football industry and has now written a book called Get Your Tits Out for the Lads, which, Sally, you're going to have to tell me about, please. The title. 
Thank you. Um, so, yes, it's the first question I've been asked many times. It's a memoir. It shines a light on my career in football and sexism, misogyny and gender inequality. The reason for the title, it's a chant that was said to me when I was in Portugal as a fan for Euro 2004. Um, I was in Lisbon with one girlfriend and I think four male friends and the male friends were in a bar and we were going to meet them there. And we had to cross a busy main road to approach this bar and it was a sunny afternoon and we were waiting to cross the road and a couple of the guys saw us approaching the bar and started this infamous chant which is said still commonly today in England and across Europe by men to women get your tits out get your tits out I won't sing it on tone deaf as you just heard um but you get the gist um and so two guys started pointing at us and and screaming at the top of their voices this chant and then we sort of nervously looked at each other and oh, oh, that's a bit embarrassing, but we need to cross this road. Let's just wait. And within seconds, it had gone from two to three to four to I think about 200 men screaming at the top of their voices, all pointing at us as we crossed this road, the, the chance to get your tits out for the lads. So that's where the title came from. Um, and let's think about that. If we reverse that the other way around, if it's a group of 200 women in a bar and two men are approaching, are we going to sing, get your for the ladies, no. So why is it okay to say it the other way around? It's not. And looking back as young, I was 24 at the time. You know, we laughed, we smiled, we nervously laughed. We're conditioned to do that. We think it's okay. We think it's a laugh. We think it's funny. And that's maybe what Jenny was doing initially on the bus afterwards. She just won the Women's World Cup. And there's a video surfacing of her and laughing with her teammates Again, it's I don't know if that's a genuine video because I couldn't I couldn't find whether the, the BBC said they couldn't verify it. So we don't know if that's a real video or not. But apparently Lewis is trying to use that in his defense that hang on a minute. Well, if she's laughing, how is that sexual assault? Probably because we've been conditioned to laugh and we don't realize to two or three days afterwards that actually hang on, that was out of order. Um, so I think that point's worth considering too. However, if she was laughing and if she now said um, the kiss was consensual, please don't make a fuss, move on, would we have to do that? In other words, oh, is she in charge of the situation or has it gone beyond her now? I really don't know. I feel like this is going to be a 10-part Netflix series. I'm I'm hooked, as yes. is the whole world. This yes. has been playing out for so long. I don't Every day I'm checking the news to see what the latest hunger strike is or who else has locked themselves in a church. I shouldn't belittle it. It's not funny. But it, it really is. You don't know where the story is going. Um, and as far as I understand, Jenny's immediate reaction on her own social media after the incident said, I didn't feel comfortable. There was no consent. The statement that the Federation have put out is false. So I really believe and hope that that is the truth and that she isn't then going to change her story, as you just said, and say, oh, no, I was I was lying and I was I got it wrong. Um, I can't I don't even want to think about that possibility. No, um, it's a very tough situation for an individual, though, isn't it? It is. And I read today that she's in almost in hiding. She she's not allowed to. Um, I think she's got her family around her and her agency around her, but she's, you know, imagine her mental health right now and your whole life is playing out in front of the world. It's it's going to be tough. I hope she's got the support that she needs because it's it's really tough for her and her teammates, I imagine, to, you know, be stopped in the street and not saying congratulations on winning the World Cup. They're saying, oh, what do you think about the kiss? 
And they've just won the World Cup. That's yeah, such a shame. I know. Um, I'm not sure who's in charge now. It's not UEFA. Is it? Is it FIFA? Is it Spain? Who's in charge of Rubiales' future? That's a great question because it seems very messy in this situation. UEFA's silence has been deafening, getting louder and louder every day. They've said, oh, well, it happened in a FIFA tournament. Um, we won't, you know, it's it's not our place to to say anything, which I think is very weak and very poor. Um, the, yes, FIFA have suspended him for 90 days. As I said, the government, the latest news said that they can't suspend him for longer than two years because it's not considered very serious misconduct, only serious misconduct. So it feels like there's lots of different stakeholders at play. There's the courts, there's the police, there's criminal charges, there's FIFA. Uh, he's employed still as UEFA's vice president, but yet UEFA say they don't need to say anything. And I understand that UEFA is still paying him over 200,000 euros a year to be vice president of the European governing body of football. Um so there's a lot of stakeholders involved as to what happens next and who can make sure that he's no longer in power. Um, I thought the government would be able to help more than they can, but it seems they can't. They're not allowed to interfere on, on a their, their level of interference is limited. So, again, we're just going to have to see how this the next stage pans out. You'd think the royal family might intrude into the situation, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the title of the team is the Royal Spanish football team. Yeah. And there was the Queen and the daughter virtually Very close next to, door to Rub yes. Rubiales when he was clutching his vital parts. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that angle. I'll be open and honest. I don't follow too much about the Royal family in Spain. So obviously you're right. It's a... They're part of the title of the Federation and they will be very tied to it and they were present at the final. So whether they can have any influence. I mean, before we all thought he was going to resign, I was asked to do an, an interview on BBC because the breaking news was he was going to resign. Sally, can we have your reaction? He's about to resign. Everyone in that room at that point thought he was going to resign. The prime minister had asked him to resign. The deputy prime minister had asked him to resign. 90% of the world media had asked him to resign. And that was, we all thought was it was going to happen. And everyone was so stunned and shocked when he didn't. Um, I guess only a couple of people knew that what he was about to say. So I think everyone's been throwing this curveball. And now we don't, well, we're, we're trying to work out the plan B sort of on the fly um, as it's sort of new territory. But yeah, it's the royal family not saying anything. I'm not sure. I don't know the politics and the landscape of, of, Sp of Spain well enough to comment on that one. So you think that this may genuinely be the catalyst for real change? You think that the kind of misogyny and sexism that is has been baked into football for so long, as you document in your book, can be changed? Yes, I believe, and I'm positive because I think it's important that we are positive as collectively together that we can use this for the, for good. And think about racism in football. Not that long ago, you know, racism was, it still happens and it's still not great, but it, it feels like an issue that the the world organizing bodies, the European organizing bodies, they're taking really seriously and they're putting action in place around racism. But sexism hasn't had that same light shone on it. And I think this is going to make them take action because they have to, because of this 
this story in all my time working in football yes I've written a book about the topic but I've never had so many texts so many calls from people that aren't even interested in football the Super League at UEFA when the Super League happened my phone blew up and at 48 hours that was all over this has been going on now I've lost track of time a couple of weeks I think um so I feel like this is the biggest thing that's happened during my time in football and therefore I do feel I'm positive that I think that leaders won't have any choice because this has set a precedent to say you know what you thought you could get away with this and you can't anymore it's game over that's what the hashtag is isn't it in spanish the the hashtag that sevilla fc players were wearing on their t-shirts that's trending on social media it's over and i really genuinely feel that if it's over then we have to move to the next chapter and start it it's not going to be fixed tomorrow but it's going to be the start of change one commentator has said Rubiales may go and Vilda may go, but the danger is that they become scapegoats and that they let people congratulate themselves for fixing the problem and move on. Oh, gosh. Ah. <laughs> yeah, there's always a spin of a, of a, a different angle you can take. And it, it scares me to think that if Spain didn't win this World Cup, you know, this story would never have played out. My book, my in- these interviews that I'm doing, it would never have happened. And it's shone a light on something that is very important, but only kind of by chance. Uh, you know, Spain could have lost the World Cup or not been in the final, and we wouldn't have seen this story play out. Similarly, the Lionesses, when they won Euro, women's football in England has gone crazy, which is wonderful, but it took a trophy for the media to stand up to listen, to start reporting for girls to be allowed to play football at school after the Lionesses wrote a letter. But if these incidences didn't happen, why do we have to fight this hard to shine a light on what some of us have been screaming about for so long? So that's it's like a bittersweet symphony. One of my chapters in my book is called A Bittersweet Symphony because I'm happy, but I'm also bitter because it shouldn't be this hard. It's common sense. What are you going to do now? Very good question. Um, Football's in my DNA as much as, and a lot of people have asked me this, gosh, Sally, how do you still love football when they read read my book? Because it's quite a negative read, but it's honest, open, and I think it's important to, to, to write about these stories. But believe it or not, the fire in my belly is still there. I think football and sport in general is so important for society and brings so many benefits. And although we're shining a light on the negative side of the sport, I think it's got so many, as I say, good points, how it brings people together, the colour, the noise, the atmosphere. It's a mirror of life. It's so powerful. It's escapism. It really is wonderful. I can't wait to watch Brighton in Europe. We have the draw today, so I know who we're playing in Europe for the first time in our history. I'm super excited. I still love the game. So I do want to work in football in some shape or form and and maybe engender equality now that I've sort of become... I wouldn't call myself an expert after writing a book, but I'm very knowledgeable about the topic. And, you know, maybe I can help instigate change in some of these organisations. And I have a chapter in my book that talks about some solutions and how we can fix that. And I'd love to try and help organisations in that area. So I'd like to keep working in football, keep communicating about this issue that I'm passionate about and try and help organisations with gender equality. Why do you love football so? I mean, there are plenty of sports that bring people together and get people excited. Why football? Why, I presume you think it's the beautiful game, why is it beautiful? 
Well, we just saw the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, and typically neither of those countries are what you'd call footballing nations. But you saw the crowds, you saw the TV ratings, you saw Melbourne go absolutely mental when Sam Kerr scored an absolute cracker. That is why I love football. No other sport, in my opinion, can do that on that scale with non-football-loving fans in that crowd going absolutely mental. It takes you to places where no other sport can. It's very simple to understand. That's why I think it's loved by so many across the world. You can play it with two people. You can play it on your own. You can play it with five people. You can play it with however many people. Girls can play it. Boys can play it. Everyone can play it, which is another reason. You don't need a pitch. You can make a gold with a with a two bags or a jumper. You can have a wall and you can make a game. It's such a wonderful, easy, low-cost game to have a kick around, to play on sand, to play on grass, to play on concrete. And you only need something to kick. If you don't have a football, you can use a tennis ball. You know, you can still have a kick around. So I think that's it's such a simple and easy game. And the unpredictability of it is what I love as well. The underdogs sometimes surprise us all. Leicester win the Premier League and we're like, wow, fairy tales happen. You don't know who's going to win, even when there's a big gap between the teams. The underdogs can still win. So you're, you're, you're on the edge of your seat. And that's some of the reasons why I love football. And of course, plenty of people in this country would rather their children played football and not rugby because rugby risks brain damage, essentially, and is very, very hard on the body. But I do worry about those headers, don't you? Yes, there's been a lot of research recently into um, heading the ball, and I think it's starting to, the research is coming out now that it, it's proven to contribute towards Alzheimer's. So um, I certainly didn't head many balls when I was playing because they hurt and it was heavy and I didn't like it, and I've got a really small head, and so I avoided heading that rock whenever I could. But so many men and women now are growing up heading the ball repeatedly, and you, yeah, I do worry too that that's surely causing damage to to their brains would it be feasible to ban the headers or um again i don't think i have the enough expertise to to answer that question i think it's important maybe at at the younger level for children to have lighter balls and to not have heading when they're training as their brain is developing but you'd need to ask a sort of sports scientist that was researching it that had evidence to suggest why it was you had to or you didn't have to. I don't, I don't have the expertise or knowledge to say whether it should or shouldn't be banned, but um, certainly the few articles that I've read are leaning towards more and more evidence saying that it is causing damage and there is a link there. That's Sally Friedman, whose book's called Get Your Tits Out for the Lads. A divisive issue, as you can imagine. Wasn't it just a moment of sheer exuberance, says a texter, to be dealt with in-house? Did it have to become such an issue that it clouded the joy of the win. They just won the World Cup. Surely the brilliance of those women has done more for the status of women than almost anything else. Somebody else says, uh, I am no prude. Some would say over testosterone. (laughs) Would they, John? But when I was watching the presentations post-football match, I thought, what in God's name is that man doing? Is he insane? He's pulling them in and lifting them off their feet? That's creepy. And then came the brain explosion and the slobber, and I thought, well, that's his goose cooked. Double crispy. Somebody else says, Jenny Hermosa's reaction to the kiss is irrelevant. 
The man should not have done it, even if she had wanted it. Laughing, says another, can be a reaction to stress when we feel uncomfortable in a social context. And here's somebody really pushing the boat out. The Spanish fiasco. They go on about how Spain should never have been allowed into the European Union because they torture bulls, basically. Um, oh, for goodness sake, those Scottish fags, I'm gay, kiss each other constantly. Yay, they won. Grow up. That is not where babies come from, I am told. And that famous kiss has done more to damage women's sport than anything done by the, for example, New Zealand Rugby Board. The fact that the kiss was called awful by women is sort of self-defeating. And I'm appalled at the kiss, more so by the Spanish football hierarchy, says Andrew. But I am confused at the picture showing the same player lifting him bodily off the floor in delight, his feet in the air, their crotch to crotch, and the Spanish are more passionate than some of the societies. Is this a part of their culture? Yes, you could argue that, Andrew, but like genital mutilation. <laughs>